I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. That's wit.fm. Data protection is a fundamental component in software systems across different domains. Ana Maria Kalin, systems engineer at Paybase, explained what data protection is and the role of a data protection officer. We talked about compliance and the general data protection regulation, also known as GDPR. Anna also talked about financial technology and the challenges in this area. Before we continue with the interview, I wanted to invite you to check out our latest podcast, The 5-Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you will get advice from prominent engineers, writers, artists, and more in five minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching for 5-Minute Mentor. Thank you. I'm here at CoopCon in Barcelona with Ana Kalin, systems engineer and DPO at Paybase. Ana, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Dina. Thank you for having me here today. And today we're going to talk about fintech and also data protection, which are some of the areas that you've been working on. First, I want to begin with data protection because one of your roles is DPO, which stands for Data Protection Officer. Can you explain what this role is? Yes. So um, last year in May 25th, GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation, came into place in the whole of the EU. And that meant that um, most companies, depending on a set of requirements like how much monitoring and how many transactions they're doing, the size of the company, and a few other considerations. So it basically meant that some of these companies were required to have someone in as part of their organization who needs to take care of data protection. And a DPO is a bit like a data protection champion who makes sure that you have the right policies in place in terms of how long you have to retain data, how to respond to things like if a data subject, so an end user requests their data to be deleted, thinking about all of the different um, legislations that you have to comply with apart from the GDPR and how those affect your data protection requirements and um, you know, making sure you have a very good privacy policy in place, making sure you have a whole list of who are your data processors and who are your data controllers and um, you know, things like that, just having a full view of how you use, process or control data in your organization and um, keeping on top of that. And uh, for us at Paybase, that worked really well that for me to be a DPO because as a systems engineer, I have um, all of the knowledge about how our technical systems work. So then, um, and a bit of security as well. So then it was a really good way of bridging the gap between security and tech. Usually DPOs are more on the operational side rather than technical. And one of the requirements is to be able to not necessarily have a law degree, but be able to read all sorts of legislation and stuff like that. Now, I don't have those kind of qualifications, but um, we do have a, a team of lawyers that are always on call for us to ask questions and stuff like that. But yes, that's what a DPO is. 
So did this rule originate because of the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR? Yes, that's correct. It's basically a requirement of GDPR. And um, just as I mentioned, GDPR is the directive that was applied in the whole of EU. But um, in most of the EU states, there was a Data Protection Act that was quite old. So GDPR is um, making that Data Protection Act better or more defined and um, it's a lot about accountability between the different parties that process data so here we're talking about um, a business and then their suppliers and who's in charge of doing what and just having that full view and you said it involves a lot talking to people that can read legislation lawyers so can you just describe briefly sort of the workflow of that interaction so sometimes um, i have to read contracts to make sure that they do what we want them to do from a data protection point of view that we're covered and stuff like that. And um, there are terms or there are things that I might not understand as clearly as someone who has a law degree. So that's when I go to one of our lawyers to check or um, when we're trying to get a new policy in. And again, you have to have a really good view of the law. Like Now I do have a very good uh, understanding of uh, the Data Protection Act, which is... Um, the flavor of GDPR in each EU state, but um, it's good to have someone sort of, you know, uh, check your understanding from a legal point of view. Yes, definitely. I want to talk now about fintech. You work at Paybase, which is a company in this space. Can you explain in more detail what fintech means? Right. So fintech can mean a lot of things to many people, depending on the company, depending on your product and stuff like that. But in my understanding and how I would describe it, fintech is more like an industry movement for financial institutions that don't work in the traditional way of dealing with financial data and financial transactions, and instead they actually leverage and uh, make use of the latest technologies that are available today. Because most of the financial institutions, the big traditional banks um, that are out there, they're very, very outdated. In my background, I've worked, before working with Paybase, I've worked for a lot of banks on different projects for cloud migrations. And um, what happens is they have a huge, huge ecosystem of different, like thousands of applications. Some of them are not being maintained properly. Sometimes certain teams don't have a view of what the applications are. And in general, just doing any sort of project takes a lot of time. So for me, fintech means a very good marriage between providing a financial product, but doing it in the latest and best way possible from a technology point of view. From your experience working at banks, were some of these applications really old or barely changed because there would even be people that they're like, don't touch that. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> that's a good that you asked that. So at really uh, old, big banks are basically like enterprises and corporations. And uh, apart from the technology they use, they have a big problem from a people and processes point of view. And it's to do with the way they motivate people. And if people don't feel motivated, they don't feel the need to pick up new skills and learn new tools and stuff like that. And because they're always stuck in all sorts of meetings, you don't get to be as productive as as you would want and it's almost like I hate to say this but to me when I was working for the big banks it almost felt like my spirit was being killed like I wasn't being inspired I wasn't being motivated and it's so part of the problem is the culture and how it works and who you report to and the whole chain of management the other problem is that um, a lot of these big banks um, have a lot of contractors or uh, 
a few years ago, and I think it's still going on. There are a lot of offshore teams doing work, and there wasn't a lot of visibility of what was happening. And usually, you'd have um, you'd have a new tool written by someone, like a, a team of people. And um, once that's finished, then they would go on a different project. That's actually what I was doing from a consulting point of view. And the people that remain in the team, they have to work with that tool. And sometimes there'll be a pushback because it's hard to work with something that you haven't configured and you don't fully understand, or if there's no proper handoff and stuff like that. So, so to me, the problems are the bureaucracy, um, the people process, how they're managed, and that the fact that they are not inspired to use the newest technologies and you know be motivated and be curious. That's the biggest thing that I found since joining Paybase. It's just it's amazing to be in a team of people that are always motivated and very, very curious. Um, that makes you, no matter how lazy you are, I think sometimes that I'm a bit lazy, no matter how lazy you are, it just, it just gets you going and it just gets you really interested in new stuff and you don't want to be left behind. And what's interesting is that you're working on software in the same field, but it changes a lot, that experience, based on the company and also the technologies, right? Yes. Can, yeah. can you talk about some of the the technologies that are being used at Paybase, for example? Um, yes. Uh, so um, our platform, uh, so we have an API-driven payment services platform, and our platform is built on top of Google Cloud Platform, and all of our clusters are running on um, GKE, which is Google Kubernetes um, engine. It's the managed service of Kubernetes provided by Google. We have... Um, it's a monolith application, but it's from an infrastructure point of view, it's deployed as a microservices setup, and we found that, that that's the better way of doing it, uh, rather than just having loads of microservices that you need to always update all the time, because that means that if one of them is down, then all of them, there's like almost like a, a chain reaction if there are dependencies between them. So having a, a monolith but deployed in a microservices way from an infrastructure point of view, um, has been the, the best way we've, we found to architect our platform. Um, we use a lot of databases, about five different databases, and um, we use um, monitoring a lot. So we use um, Elasticsearch, Flendy, and Kibana for log ag aggregation, and we use Prometheus and Grafana for metric collection. And um, yeah, it's a really big platform. So uh, a lot of open source technologies and very yes. cloud focus. Yes, that's correct. So um, all of our application is running on containers and Kubernetes. And um, apart from Google Cloud, about 90% of our, our tool stack is open source. And let's contrast that with traditional banking. What are some of the technologies that you saw were being used? So it's funny you also asked this because before joining Paybase, I only knew of managed services and, you know, the complete opposite of open source. But um, so what I found with some of the banks from a cloud platform and what they use, I at some point worked for a bank in the UK that decided to go to AWS and their way of getting onboarded into AWS was to actually do a process of, I don't know if whitewashing is the right term, but the, taking the, uh, the AWS API and locking down loads of features, almost like saying, well, we don't trust all of these features because we don't trust our developers to know what they're going to do, as opposed to you know, having really good um, authentication and really good uh, uh, separation of concerns and um, a good way of defining roles from a 
permission from an RBAC point of view. So the point I'm trying to make is that at big banks, even if they're uh, using public cloud, there is a tendency to lock it down as much as possible, to almost create another layer of complexity on top of the already existing cloud platform. And then how do you really keep up uh, with this too? And then you're, you're also adding your other applications. Most of them are paid for because, you know, contracts and because more assurance and stuff like that. So it just becomes um, it just becomes a lot of unneeded complexity in my point of view. I think one of the reasons why people stay away from open source is because they think it's not as secure. But then if you look at all of the security vulnerabilities that are coming out on a regular basis, most of the managing uh, managed services also come up with security vulnerabilities. So really, there is no such thing as complete security. It's just a matter of keeping up on top of things as much as possible. It's almost like uh, security is not the point in time. It's uh, something that you do all the time. Okay. Oh, that actually rhymes. I <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to clarify, what do you mean by managed services? Um, so services that you pay for, so not open source. Okay. One of the other things that you have worked on is the PCI DSS certification, which stands for Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard. What is the issue that this certification is addressing? Well, first of all, thank you for actually telling us what the acronym is because I can never remember. So this is um, a, a standard created by Visa and MasterCard to ensure that um, financial institutions that need to take payments are regulated in a certain way that um, is very secure and you're as, uh, covered as much as possible from a, from a technical point of view. Um, and we're talking here about high availability, we're talking about a lot of security stuff, about keeping um, on top of your data protection and how you, you know, how you... No, taking backups of data, making sure that when a data breach happens, uh, you have uh, you have a certain policy in place to deal with it. But this is a very technical standard that tells you how you should be architecting your your application from a networking point of view and security point of view, like you know having a firewall, um, stuff like uh, checking your firewall rules every. If I remember correctly, every six months, it's stuff like having really good security in your office. So it's not just, and also if you're using, if you have your own data centers, really tight security from a data center point of view, running annual pen tests to check your security level from an application point of view, from an internal infrastructure and external infrastructure, um, running um, quarterly uh, vulnerability scans of internal and external infrastructure, having um, you know, logging and monitoring in your platform, stuff like that. So yeah, it's a it's a very very complex standard. It's uh, I, I think it's about eighty pages of requirements. It, it takes a long time uh, to get it, and um, we actually have uh, the highest level of compliance, level one, but uh, because uh, well, it's required, but it's also the the hardest one to get as well. And who needs to get these kind of certification? Uh, so any business that. Um, has uh, that requires so any business that supports taking payments whether they're in a store or whether they're online um, now the caveat with this is that you can be a business that supports like, taking payments okay. uh, an e-money account and not be fully compliant with PCI DSS only if you use another business down the line that will process the payment uh, details for you, like the, you know, the card number, the doing um, address verification checks when someone submits their card details 
and stuff like that. But yeah, basically it applies to any business that's taking payments, that's dealing with cardholder data. You're working on this PCI DSS certification in the context of having it in a fintech platform that's deployed on containers and Kubernetes. We did several intro shows on Kubernetes and containers. People can refer to those to understand what this is. In the context of this work, can you explain the challenges for this? Um, yeah, so you're talking about the marriage between PCI DSS and Kubernetes and cloud platforms and having your application deployed that, this way. So I found it really challenging because the way the PCI DSS standard is written is still in a very traditional way in which it sort of assumes that you're either having your servers um, your application running on different servers in a traditional way, or you're having your application running on virtual machines. It, there is no mention today, there is no mention about containers or Kubernetes in the PCI DSS standard. And what I found from, that was really challenging uh, was translating those requirements to the Kubernetes and container world, but also, so every year you have to do an audit. So, uh, so once you, you're recertified every year, so that means that someone who is um, PCI DSS trained has to come into your business and um, check that what you're saying you're doing actually happens. So like an audit. And um, what I found was that the, it was really hard to find someone who um, in that space who understood what Kubernetes is and what containers are. And, um, and sometimes even if they say they understand, and I don't blame them because it's not their job, like they should be trained by the standard, in my opinion, they don't really have a, a good understanding of how containers really work in the real life. So then one of the big challenges is in a way, training people about Kubernetes and containers, also getting certified and also convincing them or proving to them that the requirement that's written in a very traditional way, you're meeting it in a container world, but there's no guidance whatsoever. So that was the biggest challenge. That was the, the thing that took the, the longest from our point of view. And so, so what I'd like to say is that um, the PCI DSS is very, very outdated and um, something should happen. And um, I've spoke recently to some of the guys from uh, Monzo, which is um, a big bank in the UK. And um, they also went to the PCI DSS certification process. And they also had um, a somewhat similar experience in terms of training their auditors about containers. And because, so, so one of the questions, the first question is, tell me where your data center is. And of course, you don't know where your data center is because it's yeah, um, yeah it's somewhere in London. Um, it's Google knows, I don't know. And you know, some auditors had troubles with that. Yes, and do you find that uh, it's gonna be updated since various companies are going through this? That it it will eventually make it to updating the certification? I'm not 100% sure. I know that I've been speaking a lot about it. I've been complaining a lot. But I think, as, you know, look today at KubeCon, there's 8,000 people that attended. These people are interested in Kubernetes or are already using it. Now, the, the, the Kubernetes world and the user base is much more bigger than that. Not everyone made it today, right? Yeah. So I think um, they will have to do it. They will have to update the standard. It hasn't happened yet, but I really hope it does for the sake of our reauthorization and all of the businesses that are in the same situation. And um, the other thing that um, 
I did recently a talk about this and about the challenges we found at QCon this year. And um, some other users came to me to tell me that the reason why they haven't yet fully migrated to Kubernetes and containers and all of that is because they have to be PCI DSS compliant and um, they weren't sure how they were going to meet all of those requirements. So you can meet them. It's just a lot of work in understanding, in translating those requirements between the traditional and the new fancy Kubernetes world. Yeah, and that's a little bit unfortunate because all these technologies in the cloud space are moving really fast and people see benefits in them. And then because legislation is a bit slower to do, then some people like you're mentioning are just not using these technologies because there's no guidance and yeah, they don't know. Exactly, yeah. And uh, if you're at a bigger company and you don't have the management buy-in in changing I can see how there'll be a lot of pushback in terms of saying, okay, let's hold off until it becomes, until this Kubernetes thing makes it into the PCI DSS world. Or if you don't have the resources to have lawyers that help you understand and, you know, more employees, like if you're super small and you want to do something in this payment space, then you start running into this bottlenecks. So lawyers don't help at all in the PCI DSS world because it's a very, very technical oh, standard. Okay. They do help in the data protection world. There is a bit of overlap of how you do things. So one of the big challenges that I found from a PCI DSS point of view was the fact that with every single requirement, you also have to have a super documented policy and process, which in general is a good thing. But I felt like that in a lot of areas there was over over creating processes and over documentation you're currently working at paybase and it's a company based in london in the payment space like we've been talking about can you explain some of the types of things that paybase is doing yes so um, the way we like to market ourselves uh, so we are the most flexible api driven solution for payment compliance and risk and most of our customers are marketplaces, gig sharing economies, fintech and cryptocurrencies businesses. So our, the business model we follow is a business to business. And basically the reason why we uh, came about is because all of these businesses, they have a lot of technical impediments in coming to market. But apart from that, they have the impediments related to, to payments, to you know being PCI DSS compliant, which takes a long time and it's a massive, massive learning curve. But you also have a very high uh, regulatory burdens. So for example, there's the PSD2 standard, which requires the companies to either become a licensed payment institution or partner with one. So uh, the current payment solutions in the market today are super costly and inflexible. So that's why we sort of came about, we decided to change this. In fact, before before Paybase, we were um, um, like a, a mobile application. And the reason why we became Paybase was because we saw this gap in the market and because all of the solutions that were out there were very inflexible, ridiculously costly. Like if you don't have in investment, you're basically going to go out of business with all of the all of the fees that you have to pay or all of the um, costs related to uh, PSD2 and PCI DSS and um, stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, so the current payment solutions in the market are super costly and inf inflexible. So that's why we came about. And our solution offers a lot of flexibility in terms of, you know, almost like putting the customer into the driving seat and allowing them to build the product that they want and creating improvements that as they develop. So we're an API-driven payment services provider. 
Before we finish, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, where you're describing your time working at big banks, and you're getting a lot of experience in managed services, and then you joined Paybase, and you said, actually, what I was doing before had was very different than what I'm doing now. Can you talk about that transition, what it was like onboarding in this new technologies more focused in the cloud space? Yes. So before joining Paybase, I had a lot of experience with helping businesses migrate to the cloud, to AWS, and in general, make their applications more towards the non-traditional side of you know, doing technology. And when I joined Paybase, I didn't actually have any Kubernetes experience. I knew very little about containers. I didn't have any Google Cloud experience. I didn't have much experience with open source. I was a virgin. (laughs) (laughs) So from a transition point of view, it was tough from a learning curve and picking everything up, but it really helped that I had a very, very supportive team that believed in me when I was doubting myself and my capabilities. And That's what really, really motivated me and helped me be someone that without being smug, I would say that, you know, some people are inspired when when they see a woman on stage talk about, you know, Kubernetes problems and other stuff. So I wouldn't have been here without the support of my team. And I think that the reason why, the reason why everything is working and the reason why I love my job so much, a lot of it is because of the support I got into my team, which brings me to, by the way, we're hiring. So (laughs) come and speak to me. (laughs) But yes, so I didn't, technically it was a very challenging transition, but um, I had the support that I needed. So yeah, it was good. So once you're in the job, you're saying you have a lot of support from your team. What about when you're considering that new role? Did, were you, was there doubt? Because I know I talked to, to some people and they're like, ah, well, I don't have experience in Kubernetes. So then it's like, you don't apply for the role. So it's funny that you asked that because my career transition hasn't been straightforward or the way people that do my role start usually start with some development experience and then uh, then you go towards the devops area as you learn more about architecture and stuff like that so i started straight out of uni uh, working for ibm in the consulting business and i was straight picking up loads of things really fast and working on different projects so i've never actually been a software developer from a professional point of view, because I was consulting a lot before, and because I had a a really unpleasant experience with being in the consulting world, and most of the really big projects were with a lot of middle-aged men, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, I always felt like I was out of place, and I was unfortunate to be in some very toxic environments a few times in my career. I actually considered quitting the whole tech industry. But then one of the software engineers I was on a project with said, you should go uh, on a full job rather than do consulting and give it a try because you have the potential and because um, I think you'll do a good job. And um, I listened to his advice and I started looking for jobs. And I wanted to work with Kubernetes. I had a tiny bit of container experience. And I think it's more about how you are as a person and how I am as a person is I'm always chasing the hardest thing to do so almost to prove to myself that I can or cannot do it so which you know has advantages and disadvantages but I've always just jumped into things straight so the fact that I wanted to learn about Kubernetes didn't stop me just because I didn't know it Uh, so I just applied for the job and they were like okay you'll have to pick this up and I was like okay let's do it and that was it so my advice to everyone who's considering going into it 
don't be afraid. It's not as hard as people think, and the community is amazing, and there's so much material out there. And just don't be afraid to ask and tap into your network if you have one. And if you don't have one, you really need one in the tech industry. Yeah. So you mentioned you're in this toxic environment, you're feeling out of place, but one of the people you work with encouraged you. I want to ask more about the environment just what were some of the things that made you feel out of place and just so some people that might be experiencing this that they realize they're experiencing it or some people that notice this so that they you know raise the concern so there were two aspects to this one of them was all of the issues of being a woman in tech that you get like um, a tiny bit of discrimination a sprinkle of sexual harassment every now and then in you know from different people and stuff like that that can makes you doubt yourself and makes you think that um you know maybe i'm not maybe i'm not as good as the guys maybe i'm not meant to be here especially when some people make public comments about you know you know you're hired because you're a woman and stuff like that so that was one of the aspects and to that i would say if you're in that situation move away from it and don't listen to the haters because haters are going to hate yeah And the other part of it was being in toxic projects in which um, management was always, have you done this? This should have been done yesterday. What's happening? Why isn't this working? You know, there was always, um, sometimes some people do agile in a, in a very wrong way in which they concentrate very much on estimating a piece of work. And if that piece of work wasn't done within the estimated time, then you're almost like you get in trouble. But in the real world, estimation is, it's just really realistic because it's really hard it's really i mean hard, i have experienced yeah. like i've had things like cool i'll be done in two days then i run into this issue like configuration and then it just takes you a week a week yeah, exactly yeah. even yeah. two weeks to like yeah exactly out. yeah yeah okay yeah so just just being in a team in which everyone is ridiculously stressed everyone uh, monitors anything including coffee breaks you know sometimes even when you go to the toilet and stuff like that so i would encourage everyone who's um, in that kind of environment just go you'll be happier you'll you just you know just care about yourself about your mental health yeah and move away there are so many jobs out there especially in in this industry we're actually very very fortunate of the amount of choice that we have it's just a matter of you know ask people talk to people put yourself out there and you know dare to you know maybe feel vulnerable sometimes because That's what putting yourself out there means sometimes. Yeah, just giving another shot and find another role versus just completely leaving the industry. Exactly, yeah. 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 I'm glad I didn't leave, so. Yeah. <laughs> One more thing, you're giving a talk here at KubeCon. Can you explain what it's going to be about? Um, yes, so it's um, actually a funny story. It started as a fear of missing out sort of thing. It's about container runtimes and about understanding all of the different container runtimes. And um, you know, you're just get, getting a feel because um, when I started with containers a few years back, when we meant containers, we were talking about Docker, really. And we didn't care about how it works at the low level and stuff like that. So um, a, few, uh, a couple of years ago, I started hearing all of this new terminology like CRI, which is the container runtime interface, or OCI, which is the open container interface. And I was like, I'm getting left behind. I don't know what these things are, but I didn't have time to think about them. Um, and then because we're using GC, um, in November last year, they announced that you can switch your clusters to run on container D 
rather than Docker engine. And I thought, okay, this is the perfect time for me to sort of understand what's happening. So I decided to have a go at migrating workloads from um, Docker engine-based clusters to container D. Uh, based clusters um, and the talk is about first of all explaining the, the different container runtimes and how they all fit together uh, a bit of comparison between uh, container d and docker and uh, cryo and then about the user observations in terms of what did that in terms of performance you know uh, security observations uh, pod startup latency when you're using container d versus docker and other other things that users might be interested if they were to consider migrating to container from Docker engine when running Kubernetes. All right, and for the people that are not, we're not able to come to KubeCon, we'll include a, a link to your talk in the show notes. Yes, please, it will all be recorded and be available to everyone. Sounds good. Well, Anna, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.